today I will share with you the number one rule of communicating with a teenager and that is listen more and preach less. Don't be interrogative, judgmental or critical. Find out more about understanding teen behavior and learn how to communicate with teens so they listen. Also, learn about how to approach heavy topics like cyberbullying, sexting, pornography and more. Join my course from instructional to conversational parenting and cherish the teenage years of your child and not tackle them. Head to drmommyspeaks.graphy.com and save yourself a spot. If you're from outside India, then simply DM me for a personal link to join the course. Now coming to today's episode. The COVID era has been tough on all of us and there seems to be no hope of any change currently. I know, but remember, every cloud has a silver lining. Our job is to stay put and wait for it. Now these times has been have been most mentally taxing for us. So, in today's episode, I and my guest are going to help you become your own biggest advocate. We will teach you to put self-care on the top of your priority list and we will achieve all of this by mindfulness and learning more about emotional fatigue. My guest today is the founder of Tinana Teachings. She's been on our show earlier where she shared some amazing insights about resi- raising resilient teens in episode number 30. If you haven't heard that, check it out. And today she's back with another info-packed episode. Mary Kate is a positive psychology coach, a teacher and a speaker who specializes in vitality, the mind-body connection and body image issues. She helps women befriend their bodies and foster a loving connection with themselves and others. Please welcome Mary Kate Scott. Hi Mary Kate, glad to have you back on the show. How are you doing? Hi Dr. Raha, I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you? I'm fine. So let's get started. Uh people are getting overwhelmed with the current situation. There's too much stress in our lives and it's actually beyond what most people would have ever imagined. There's this constant emotional turmoil going on unless you've distracted yourself in work or social media. Uh now there's been a common word a buzzword taking rounds on social media mindfulness and self-care that we have to take care of our own selves so as to be able to take care of the ones we need to tend to our parents grandparents or kids so i wanted to dedicate this episode to that ability today mindfulness now people say that mindfulness is the basic human ability to be fully present aware of where we are and what we're doing and not get overwhelmed or not overly react with the things that are around us now to me when i read that first it sounded really philosophical and absolutely not practical so i wanted to hear from you a positive psychology expert that how would you explain mindfulness to someone who's never heard of it and how do it how do we make it practical especially in today's times yeah that's that's a great question and you hit the nail on the head in that because it's such a buzzword i think people get really intimidated over the idea but in the most simplest form mindfulness is just basically your ability to focus 
It's your ability to pay attention and to be in the present moment. That's simply all that it is. I can expand upon that a little bit. There's a few components to mindfulness, one of which is um, putting your attention, your focus towards your intention. So I like to use the example of reading a book. I'm sure you've been reading an article or a book and you're you're reading the words, but then you know you read a paragraph and you look up and you, you could not remember a word that you've said, right? You couldn't recite it back if someone asked you. That's being mindless. That's not actually being in the present moment with that book, right? So being mindful is actually being one with the words on the page, being able to absorb the words and the concepts that you're actually reading. That's one kind of um, part of being mindful is that putting your focus on what you actually want to focus on, uh, very simply speaking. And the next is being in the present moment, right? So we have hundreds, thousands of thoughts each day. And if we actually paid attention to all of them, we wouldn't be able to get anything done. We would go crazy. So a part of mindfulness is being in the here and now. It's not being back 20 minutes ago when you had a conversation with your partner. And it's not being two years down the line when you know, you're you're planning your child's graduation or your child entering kindergarten, right? It's being in the here and the now. Um, and then the third aspect is being non-judgmental. So part of mindfulness is being able to observe your thoughts and your feelings. It's not necessarily identify with them in the sense of, because you're having all of those thoughts each day, you can kind of take a back seat and just notice the thoughts that you're having. And with time, when you notice those thoughts, you can approach them in, from a more neutral standpoint. So you're not necessarily judging the thoughts that you're having. And I can give you an example if it would be easier to clarify. Um, your child is having trouble sleeping, right? That's a neutral thought. It's a neutral statement. Your child's having trouble sleeping we tend to inject negativity into that statement and that's judging the situation. If you choose to identify with that thought and then you know run away with that thought, you're no longer being in the present moment and you, your mind might say things like, my child's having trouble sleeping, I've done everything I can and he's not going to bed on time, he's crying at night, I must be a terrible mother because I'm doing everything I can and he's still not sleeping. And you go on and on and on, right? That's identifying with that thought and running away with that story. So a part of being mindful is focusing your attention on where you want it, but also being able to bring yourself back to the present moment when our mind does wander, right? It's a natural thing. Actually, you know what, the fact that uh, intrigued me the most here was, you know, the human mind's ability to do two things separately, like you told me the example of reading the book. So you could totally finish up a paragraph and still not register a line about it because your thoughts are wandering somewhere else. You see how the way we did two absolutely dissociated actions and they had absolutely no connection. But then in real life, it's so important to be in the present and have those coordinated actions. So uh, like you said about uh, mothers overthinking that's a common dilemma every night war is what I like to call it in my house where you know you have to go to war whose turn is it to put the kids to sleep but then when you're actually overwhelmed with all the work that's piled up and the stress from everything that's going around and the time to put your child to sleep uh, at that time is absolute, absolute silence in the house and those thoughts hit back 
and you de definitely tend to go into the spiral of overthinking and you get so overwhelmed that now you're completely only in your thoughts and you're not paying attention on the child and you know the task would have which would have taken just 10 minutes if you would have actually told a proper story in the way they want and everything but it's not going to take an hour because you were lost in your thoughts yeah it's such a good point too if we're able to actually ground down and be aware of the present moment we're able to be more calm more focused and not for nothing more productive and more caring to others as well absolutely uh mindfulness sounds like something i'd really like to know more about can you tell us some about some of the misconceptions related to mindfulness yeah so one of them we kind of already touched on because it's such a buzzword um, people assume that there's a right way to practice mindfulness um, because I think we're conditioned to think that mindfulness is uh, sitting on a cushion, right? Or having some sort of, more, sort of formal or structured practice. And that's just not the case. There's a difference between mindfulness and meditation. Mindfulness is a way of showing up in the world. It's that intentional practice of bringing yourself back to the present moment. So you can practice mindfulness and ground down with me right now by just feeling the sensation of your fingertips against each other as you rub them. It's just a super simple way to ground down. Whenever you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious or you feel yourself spiraling, you just bring yourself back to the present. Say, you know what? I'm rubbing my pointer finger and my thumb together. And so and am I. <laughs> and it feels kind of weird, but this is my present moment right now. Yeah, because my body is completely focused on what this this task that I am doing. And so my thoughts, I'm not wondering, I'm right here rubbing my fingers. <laughs> it sounds silly. So that's, that's one practice that you you can do. Another way to ground yourself down um, really quickly is called the five, four, three, two, one. So you know five things you can see in your immediate environment, four things you can hear, three things you can feel that could be, you know, the fabric of your shirt and your skin or the weight of your seat on the couch or whatever that is. Um, two things you can smell and one thing you can taste. Just a really simple way to connect with your five senses. And again, ground down in that present moment, bring yourself back to the here and now. Um, another misconception of mindfulness to answer your original question um that mindfulness and meditation are the same which they are not i was actually is that going to, practice i was actually going to bring that up that it sounds pretty much similar to meditation but then you know when you actually sit to meditate there are a hundred thousand thoughts that are going to wander here and there yes you they do say that you can concentrate we are you know just by counting your breaths or you know concentrate on the movement of your limbs and what you're doing or what you're chanting but then at the end of the day it's not enough unless until you've practiced it for months and months and that's the amount of time it takes to bring focus back and in today's overwhelming times when we're so stressed i don't think anybody you know could be putting up a starter a beginner an amateur won't be putting up that much of effort and time in uh, achieving that yeah it's true um there's I mean, there's a million different ways to meditate, but meditation is a formal way you can, I call it like the scaffolding or the framework to support your way of being in the world. So you practice meditation in order to show up more mindfully in your everyday life, right? So meditation and mindfulness are not the same thing. 
Another misconception of mindfulness that I touched on earlier is that people think there's a right and wrong way to do it, that you have to be all zen-like on that cushion for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night. That's not true. We I just talked about a couple ways to, to ground down um, and actually be mindful. So you can also incorporate mindfulness into everyday activities like washing the dishes, taking a shower, just feeling the water on your skin, smelling your shampoo or your body wash that helps you stay in the present moment. So yeah, it's, it's really not, it doesn't have to be as complicated or as intimidating as people think. So it's basically just about concentrating on the task at hand. Absolutely. All right. So moving on. Um, now, does mindfulness have a role in uh, people's relationships? Like, uh, can it improve that as well? And if yes, then how? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So a piece of mindfulness is, is uh, well, mindfulness and compassion are really, really closely related. Um, compassion is this idea of being able to notice and want to help um, someone ease some sort of pain or suffering they're experiencing. So it's an act of, of care, of, of um, being there for someone, alleviating some sort of stress. In order to be compassionate, you have to be mindful because you have to be aware and notice that someone else is in need. Exactly. Right? So, so if you are really with someone, like you and I are having this conversation and there's no other distractions, we're with each other right now, we could more easily notice if there was some distress or any sort of emotions or nonverbals that we would be communicating to each other because we're in the present moment. But if you have mind chatter and a story going in the back of your head about how, did I turn off the stove? I think I turned off the stove. Should I call my husband to make sure that I turned off the stove? While you're having a conversation with someone, there's no way you're actually paying attention to their words, right? So by being in the present moment, you're giving someone the gift of actually listening to them. And in today's day and age with so many distractions, that is a really, really powerful thing you can give someone. You know, the uh, true testimony to that would be our very own Instagram and the Reels feature. You know, I have noticed that the amount of time people spend on seeing content is reducing and is directly proportional, inversely proportional to people's attention spans. Like first, we used to have IGTV videos. You can put up anything for an hour, say 20 minutes, people would watch that. That got reduced to a minute videos. And now people are not even watching that. 30 seconds and 15 seconds is their attention span and now it is horrible what is happening to the human race yeah it's oh that's so interesting you bring that up um i have a lot of thoughts around what social media and technology is doing to our attention span and our ability to focus but i would say it just makes it that much more important for us to spend time in silence right we're not used to being alone with our thoughts we're not used to being in quiet places so giving yourself that time and that ability to just focus inward um, is, is really, really important because of all the distractions and external stimuli that actually destroy our ability to focus. Um, one other thing I forgot to mention about a misconception of mindfulness or just, I guess, something to share for people who are just beginning to practice is that when you do begin to meditate, if you choose to do that and be alone with your thoughts, it can be really overwhelming and potentially anxiety provoking because we're not used to being alone with our thoughts. We're not used to sitting in silence. So you might feel a flush, a flood of a lot of different thoughts and it can feel really overwhelming um, when you first start to practice. So it's just something to keep in mind. It's very, very normal. Um, but I just like to say that because 
mindfulness does help to um, boost your calm, right? But so that can just seem kind of counterintuitive to start. Okay, so I am rubbing my fingers and thumb right now. You have to tell me what is the science behind this? How is it bringing back my attention right here in front of this laptop? How? I mean, it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm all about the mind-body connection, right? So just the tactile touch of your fingers, you're rubbing slowly. It just helps you remind yourself, oh, I'm here right now. My body and my mind, I am physically sitting at this chair having a conversation. Um, because the funny thing about our brain is that it can't discern between our thoughts and our actual reality. So if we're thinking something, our brain thinks that we're actually living that. So by focusing your attention in the present moment, by you know rubbing your fingertips together, it tells your brain, oh, I'm feeling something. I'm feeling my hands. Oh, wow, I have hands. Oh, I'm sitting in this chair. I'm in the present moment. This is what's going on right now. This is where I need to be. Got it. That was amazing. All right. Now, since we were talking about uh, digital use and then now in many homes, people are just stranded in their houses, locked up. And all of a sudden, there's been a surge in the use of digital media. Uh, parents, grandparents, children, everybody's on the phones. Now, it could be either for online schooling, some sort of recreational purposes, playing video games or simply to connect with their friends. Uh, I have seen that there's been many surveys, in fact, uh, that teenagers and tweens, that is nine to 18 year olds, have had a pretty adverse effect of this increased screen time use in the form of uh, body image issues. And, uh, you know, when you constantly stare at those perfect bodies, those uh, abs and figure eight uh, bodies, then it actually makes you subconsciously puts you down in the terms of your self-esteem and your self-confidence. Then there have actually been many uh, episodes where children have been cyber bullied, but they just wouldn't bring it up to their parents because they felt that parents are going to snatch their devices. The number one fear that teens have. So I wanted to uh, discuss with you about how we can solve this problem by understanding understanding how the teen brain works what about their emotions they're always so high on emotions so what is the deal with that yeah that's a that's a really great question so i'll explain a little bit about how the brain works and then bring it back to teens because teen brains are a little bit different than adult brains um so generally speaking we have two different brains you know in in our head we have our our ancient brain, our emotional brain, that's home to our limbic system, our amygdala, that fight, flight, or freeze response that you might be familiar with, that's all home to our emotional brain. Um, that was around, you know, and we share that brain with animals, and it's actually called the lizard brain because lizards also have the limbic system. Um, that part of our brain is really densely packed with neurons. So there's a lot of brain activity happening in our emotional brain because it's been around for so long. So that's where our emotional surges come from. It's where our emotional reactivity comes from, this emotional part of our brain. The second part of our brain is our human brain, our neocortex, that's home to our, um, our reasoning, right? Our executive function. So our ability to critically think, to plan ahead, to reason and rationalize, that's our human brain. It's a little bit um, more recent, so there's not as much neural activity happening there. Mindfulness is actually a really great way to build up and strengthen our prefrontal cortex so we can more easily control our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. Um, so these two brains, our emotional brain and our human brain, they're at odds with each other um, a lot of the time. An example is um, with these two brains at play is that 
if you um, are on the top of like a skyscraper or if you're like up really high, you know you have solid a solid um, floor below you, right? So you know you're not going to fall. You know you are safe. Your rational human brain knows you are okay. But there still might be a part of you that's a little bit on edge or a little bit jumpy being like, I don't know about this. We're up really high. I'm not really sure. I think I want to get out of here. That's your emotional brain trying to protect you and get you out of that potentially dangerous situation. The reason that the teen brain in this part of adolescence is so important, when, especially when talking about mindfulness, is that um, the teen's prefrontal cortex is not fully developed yet. So their ability to reasonably think, their ability to rationalize or control their emotions is not there yet. Actually, there's new evidence to suggest that your prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until like age 27 or 28, which is- Mid-adolescence, right. Yeah, right. So um, an adolescent's emotional brain is really, really, really strong. I mean, that's with puberty and different emotion or hormones being introduced into the body, um, that's all connecting to the brain and how the, the teen is showing up in the world. Um, and social media triggers, pushes all those right buttons, right? It triggers all of that emotional reactivity within the teenager. The, the word emotional intelligence is coming up for me right now. Yeah. So um, in order to help a teenager foster a sense of emotional intelligence, um, validating their emotions, you know, um, that's really, really important because negative emotions aren't bad. That's a misconception. Um, we, we categorize emotions as positive and negative, right? But emotions are not inherently good or bad. There's a reason that you're feeling sad or angry or that your teen is lashing out, right? Every emotion we have serves a function and it's there for a reason. So if you're a parent working with a teen, um, I would firstly say to help, to help them navigate their emotions, to validate and accept whatever it is that teen is feeling. It's going to help them do the same. Right. Uh, about emotional intelligence. So, you know, uh, there must be some ways that we can work with our emotions because things like sadness, frustration, anger, these are usually portrayed in bad light, like you said, and aren't accepted by parents. Now, the reason is either they don't know how to handle them or they get annoyed when their child is expressing their emotions that they don't know how to handle. So that's the reason why they're always termed as negative emotions. So are there ways to work around this? Yeah, absolutely. So emotional intelligence is really simply the ability to notice, name, and navigate your emotional experiences and that of others. So what does that mean? being able to notice the feeling that's coming up for you, being able to notice what you're feeling and where in your body you're feeling it. Because emotions are energy in motion. They're chemical signals that tell us to pay attention because something in our environment is happening. So firstly, being able to notice what emotion you're feeling and where it is in your body is really helpful too. The second thing is being able to identify it and name it, put a label on it, right? Because you can't work with something that's not identified. So being able to label, I'm feeling really disappointed right now, or you know, my teen feels like they're feeling really sad or frustrated. Being able to have language to describe how you're feeling is also really important. And then navigating it, I mean, I come back to just using the body to do that. So because emotions are energy in motion and we can feel different emotions in our body, right? Your chest might tighten, your legs might get really heavy, um, your chest might feel lighter, your hands might get tingly, whatever it is. 
helping to move that energy through you is I like to just move my body. So I literally will shake it out, scream into a pillow, um, do some like self-soothing techniques. So I'll like give myself a hug or, um, you know, dance, shake it out, whatever it is you have to do to move that energy through you. I also find to be really helpful. Um, but there's, there's one piece that I want to mention about just highlighting again that negative emotions are not bad. There's a reason why your teenager is feeling sad, right? So thoughts and feelings um, relate to each other really, really closely. So if someone's feeling sad, they're feeling like they've lost something. And the action associated with feeling sad is to grieve or to mourn. So if they're feeling sad about something, you might wanna ask yourself, what is it that they feel like they've lost? Anger, when you're feeling angry, it's because you feel like your rights, whether they're it's emotional or psychological, your rights have been violated in some way. So someone's crossed a boundary with you. You get angry, you wanna defend yourself, right? So if your teen's feeling angry, you might wanna ask yourself, I wonder what boundary was crossed? I wonder um, what rights that they have that might be uh, um, threatened right now. So it's about questioning ourselves more rather than pinpointing the teen and shunning his or her emotions down that parents usually yeah. tend to do. Like go yeah. back to your room or you're grounded whenever the child tries to come up with something when they're scolded or rebuked. Yeah, absolutely. Um, having different conversations with your teenagers about their feelings. I actually love this tool called the feelings wheel. It's a circle you can find, you can Google's feelings wheel, a, a million will pop up. But it just gives you a lot of different ways to describe how you're feeling. So it, um, it strengthens your emotional or feeling vocabulary um, to help identify and you know put a pin on what it is you're actually experiencing. Absolutely. Now, uh, so we were talking about emotions and giving the child an outlet. So the exact roadmap uh, to teach your child about emotions would be number one, acknowledge your child's emotions, whatever he's feeling, if he's feeling sad, or if he's feeling angry, acknowledge that by using phrases like, I know you're feeling really angry that I didn't let you go out or I didn't let you play more video games. Number two would be to uh, uh, provide them with an outlet as to what we're going to do now about it. Uh, so if we're sticking to the video games thing, then something like uh, we can uh, play later or how about we finish dinner and then you can have 20 minutes of games or something like that. And if say we're dealing with anger, now anger is a very powerful emotion. So uh, rationalizations don't work when you're dealing with teens and anger. So you have to, when they're not amidst their, you know, amidst a heated argument, when they're absolutely calm, I think at those times, if you give them proper outlets, like, and that too, they have to be gender specific. So I found uh, for boys, whenever they're angry, uh, pushing them to go and take a hot shower or just go outside and take a run. And if it's girls, so journaling, journaling does well for boys as well, or just uh, reading a book at that time. So if you have put your child in these habits and provided these as outlets to remove their emotions from the beginning from their tween years then they tend to become more emotionally stable adults in the long run what do you think oh i think that you said that so beautifully um yeah you need an outlet right and and as a teenager you i think it's really important for humans generally but especially teens to 
have them realize that they're not alone. I'm saying it's part of being human and it's part of being a teenager because being a teenager is hard. <laughs> absolutely we were there we know how bad we were for other people yeah. i mean i always got to hear you're so tough to deal with and then now when i think of it i'm like i wasn't tough you guys didn't understand me i was just a kid yeah it's true okay now so tell me something uh now i have a toddler and uh, from his younger age group i have started to teach him outlets of what to do when you're angry or what to do when you're frustrated label your emotions so counting to 10 or taking breaths or just going and taking a glass of water we're trying to all put this into practice uh when i was young we were never taught about emotions i mean thought that it's it actually sounds absurd now that i think of it what about you were you thought about emotions did your parents ever you know acknowledge these feelings that okay you're sad i can see you're angry was there some sort of acknowledgement that's oh i'm trying to think back and um so i am the youngest of six children so coming from a large family um, and I have four sisters and one brother so my poor father was very conditioned to having you know screaming and crying girls just everywhere right that was, that was the environment in which he grew up yes yeah, so um emotions definitely weren't talked about in the way that we're talking about them now and I think because there were so many teenage girls in the house our emotions and you know the crying or whatever it was was kind of looked over as just oh you know you're being hormonal you're just being a girl or like exactly. whatever exactly that heard right? that so yeah. many times <laughs> yeah yeah so I can't remember or recall having a conversation with my parents around like okay this is this is how like this might be helpful if you're feeling angry if you're feeling sad like try this that was never really talked about I mean I, I grew up in a supportive home don't get me wrong but um, I'm not sure my parents knew. No, exactly. About that's, that's what I'm talking about. In spite of coming from good homes, these uh, parenting teachings were never done. And the reason is because this generation, the younger generation is so well aware of all this and we feel the urge to make a change. Uh, parenting, like you know, the punchline from my podcast is parenting cannot be learned on the job. And it's actually been imbibed from my own personal experiences. Uh, I always like to say, when you leave from the hospital with your baby at after one month postpartum you sometimes sit in the night and you feel i think the hospital forgot to send the manual with the baby <laughs> exactly exactly because you have to know you know you have to research well in advance uh, how to wean your child how to do potty training how to breastfeed the various positions you have to learn all of that because if you're learning it on the job who is that if you're going wrong you might either go right or wrong if you go wrong who's suffering the child has to bear the repercussions and the same thing goes when the child grows up your values the way you teach them about emotions about honesty kindness all these big things how do you raise an emotionally stable child how do you raise someone who is independent who does his own chores a guy who respects girls all of these values have to be taught what our parents did till now was wing it and we turned out fine okay <laughs> look at that Look at me. So what our parents think, okay, we did a fabulous job. But then we know deep down, you know, the struggle that it has been. So let us all try to avoid all of that and make it easier uh, for our children. Okay, so we actually drifted pretty uh, far from our topic of mindfulness. Let's come back to it now. Sure.
Okay, so we were talking about, um, all right, so uh, if you're aware, you must have seen in news, uh, in India, the COVID cases are really high, we're close to 4 lakh cases a day, per day. So that is really bad. And uh, there has been an extreme shortage of oxygen beds. And, um, you know, hospital vacancies are very difficult. So uh, for someone who's not exposed, just sitting at home watching the news, this is all we get to see. And uh, the social media is like the new news hub now. Everyone is just putting out, uh, uh, you know, either shout outs or their requests for medications if someone has any clue for particular hospitals and stuff. So when you're not affected by all of that, but then you're still exposed to all this news, it really overwhelms you. And you sometimes feel like there's no hope and the uncertainty literally kills so i feel that all of this brings a lot of emotional fatigue and so i want to know from you that is there a way uh, that we can tide this better uh, a way in which we can handle our emotions better yeah that's oh that's another great question um so from my viewpoint emotional fatigue or burnout comes from um, boundary setting. I think it ties really closely into where you feel like, like how much you feel like you can give and when you feel like, okay, I need to take a step back and, you know, rejuvenate in whatever ways that work for me. Um, it's a part of being emotionally intelligent, right? You have to be able to feel and be aware of this, the feelings of, um, of burnout, of exhaustion, of your, maybe your inability to focus, some precursors to burnout, right? Um, maybe it's helplessness, maybe it's hopelessness, maybe it's depression. Um, I think being aware of the emotions that crop up on the way to fatigue or burnout is really important to kind of, you know, step in and intervene and say, okay, what can I do to prevent this actual burnout state from happening? Um, but from my opinion, it's, it's really about boundary setting. So whether you're talking with another person or um, it's a coworker, it's a spouse, it's a child, whatever it is, or you're watching the news, it's being able to say no, right? Say enough. I am, this is draining me. This is not rejuvenating and I need to take a step back. So advice I would give to people who are watching a lot of the news, microdose that a little bit, be intentional about the news and the media that you're consuming. Um, I mean, checking the sources and all that, ensuring that it's actually, you know, credible information is important, but more just the amount of time you spend consuming that is really, really important. If you're only consuming devastating, worrisome, and sad information all day, it's going to have an effect on your being. It's just, I mean, we all feel it. Um, so being able to to tune in with yourself and, and say no, whether it's to the news station or to a partner or a friend um, is really important. Definitely easier said than done. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's going to help you prevent that burnout and fatigue from happening. Absolutely. That was a lovely advice. Uh, so basically cutting down on your news hours. And I personally feel, you know, that if you want to keep yourself updated on the current vaccination schedules or bed availabilities or the now we have lockdown. So the current lockdown restrictions, what they have been. So watch news. There's nothing bad in that. But then cut it down to say just prime time, say one hour, 8 p.m. 
you've checked in you've got all you want the headlines are done walk it just switch it off and there's this new thing that uh, people have started doing whenever like dinner's over the entire family is sitting together the living room turns into a covid news hub everybody starts talking now grandparents are all into whatsapp and they have their own forwards so they're going to be saying that i got news that something happened in that hospital or here this happened and then the younger ones are going to have their inputs so overall what we're doing is harboring more and more of negativity and flaming that so i think we need to stop that because family time has to be something that we can cherish for a long period and it has to be a happy time why do you want to remember this as some as something so negative so maybe if you're sitting together so an hour of board games or maybe uh sing together or you know read books something like that or just watch a movie a movie night all of these would be such uh good options rather than watching news it's so true Oh, so they say that the first five years of a child are ruled by emotions, play, curiosity, and imagination. So how do these change uh, from childhood to adolescence? What of the, which of these feelings uh, still stick by and which of these leave? And also, uh, could you tell us why is it important for children and adolescents to practice mindfulness? Yeah, so... I'll touch on the play and the curiosity piece first. Um, one of the reasons why people like to be around kids is because they're so naturally curious and vivacious and like to play and they're goofy and fun, right? And somewhere along the way, kids are repeatedly told no, right? Whether it's by parents or their teachers or society, you can't do that, you have to do this. You have to look this way, you have to be this way, right? It's, this societal set of rules with cultural standards tell children no you can't play you can't you can't don't ask questions just do what you're told it completely hinders that natural ability we all have to ask questions and to explore and to play to have fun so in order for and there's another part of this too in that especially when you're a teen it's a really vulnerable time because you're trying to find your peer group and fit in, right? It's a time where your, your parents or your caretakers, you don't really care as much about what they're saying because you wanna be cool and fit in with your friends, right? So you're relying more on your peer group. And so you wanna be cool. You wanna fit in. And being playful is actually really vulnerable because being silly and letting your guard down can be kind of scary. You're not exactly sure what the outcome is going to be. So if you're, if you're being um, your, your authentic self and you're playing, you don't want your, your, your friends to laugh at you. So you're gonna hold that inside. You're gonna you know, be that perfect, cool teenager so everyone's friends with you, right? So that also hinders play and curiosity. You're trying to fit in. There's a lot of shame in adolescence too of like, I'm not good enough. I have to be this way, right? In order to fit in also hinders play. Um, but funny enough, in order to, to you know, break that shame and all of the, the mental agony you might have around that is to actually play and connect and be vulnerable and put yourself out there. Um, so that's one difference like five-year-olds don't really care much about what their friends think of them because their friends are also just playing and having fun. But a 13-year-old, because their brain is different, they're trying to fit in and find their, their peer group. They're gonna care a little bit more. And so it's gonna like, uh, they're not going to be as likely to, you know, be goofy and play. Um, and bringing it around back to mindfulness, I mean, 
if you're in the moment, you're not thinking about the shame that might come from an action. You're not thinking about, you know, the conversation you had with your friend Jimmy yesterday and what they said about Susie and how that's affecting you right now. Like all of that rumination and all of that garbage that's floating around in a teen's brain, um, it's not there if you're being mindful. If you're truly in the present moment with a person, you're going to be able to um, more easily express what's coming up for you and, and how you want to be in the world more naturally and authentically. In principle, it sounds really amazing to help your teen be in the moment and not think about all of that trash, which is always there in their mind. Uh, the biggest worry of a teen would be who's just had a fight with her best friend and she's wondering, okay, how am I going to patch up? Because that's the most important thing in my life right now. So and imagine if your teen actually realizes that, okay, it's not important. She's going to come around and, you know, you'll work it out eventually. So how do we put this into practice to help teens practice uh, mindfulness? I would suggest looking up some maybe guided meditations or mindfulness activities for teenagers specifically. They're going to be a little bit different than ones for adults. Um, and there are a lot of different types of meditations and practices around relationships. Um, so I would suggest doing a quick Google search. Nothing is coming to mind right now as far as practices, um, but a part of being mindful is um, accepting the present moment too. So, oh, and you know, it's understanding that the fight that you have with your friend is normal. You know, like that sort of conflict is going to happen in life. Um, I mean, it's a hard lesson to learn, but understanding that, you know, you're not the only teenager dealing with this and that's okay. It might help to also kind of ease that pain. Exactly. Uh, so you recently co-authored and published a book chapter and a scientific review of mindfulness-based interventions in school settings. I read the preview chapter of it and I must say I was really intrigued. I loved it. Uh, what, are, what were your findings? Uh, could you share something with us? Sure. So I'll, I'll try and make it uh, short and sweet. Essentially, what we found in our literature review is that um, the field of mindfulness as a, um, a scientific field of study, there's, there's a lot of excitement around it um, because we all know, right? You and I know that there's benefits to mindfulness, right? And that it's, it's a buzzword for a reason. Um, so the enthusiasm around it doesn't really have the, the actual scientific evidence and support to roll it out um, in school settings. So um, the field is kind of a kind of a mess. <laughs> I hate to say it, but it's kind of true, um, in the sense that a lot of the studies that have been published aren't as rigorous or aren't up to um, as high of standard as they could be. So the type of study that were being studies that were being published um, were strong, but could have been stronger to support the actual mindfulness intervention being used in the classroom. Um, another thing that was noted is that there's really no concise definition of mindfulness in any sort of scientific literature. There's a lot of different um, ways to describe it, especially depending on the population in which you're, you're working with or studying. So it's like, how can you study this concept when we really 
haven't come to an agreement about what it really is or what it means. So that's probably the biggest thing we found is that there's a, not a consensus around it just yet. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that with this kind of nebulous and abstract idea of what mindfulness is in the literature, um, there's also inconsistency with the type of interventions being used. There's only a handful of evidence-based mindfulness interventions that have been used in school settings that have real scientific support. But because there are so many different practices out there, um, I would just suggest that teachers and school admins just do their due diligence and make sure that the intervention they're using actually has scientific support around it. Because the field is very new, that support is definitely coming, but it's not quite there yet. Got it. So you also volunteer in the Mind Body Lab at the Syracuse University. Can you tell me a little bit about the lab and the studies that you've helped out with? Yes. So um, the Syracuse University Mind Body Lab studies the benefits of mindfulness interventions on youth and their teachers and their families. Um, so actually to answer one of the problems that we found in that literature review I just referenced, um, I'm a part of a study actually trying to set a standard for how to, um, for what a mindfulness intervention should be comprised of and actually how to deliver it in a school setting. Um, the, the structure of the study is called a Delphi study. So we're asking a panel of 20 experts who have been studying and practicing mindfulness for you know, a couple decades, right? We're asking them from your experience, what are the main components of what mindfulness is? What's your definition of it? And what are the core components of a mindfulness intervention for kids in this age group, for kids in or you know, preschool, kindergarten age, um, teenagers and um, secondary school, so like late adolescence. Um, just to kind of get a consensus among the group of, okay, here are the experts and this is what they're saying. Here are the commonalities around what actually makes up the idea of mindfulness and how do we actually have a best practice or a standard to refer back to when we're going into schools. You know what makes me most happy about after listening to this study? The fact that all of these interventions and definitions are targeted for the child, the younger population, children, high school and teenagers and not adults. Because here is when the base and the foundation is formed. If you've taught a teen how to focus, how to strengthen his rational thinking, all of this in the younger age, then he's going to be so much more stable uh, when he grows up. So that is amazing. Yeah, we're finding it's actually the difference that a mindfulness intervention makes in a classroom is really astounding. Um, the research that we do is applied, meaning that we're actually in the classrooms collecting data, observing student behavior. Um, and the difference that the interventions make is really, really cool to see in real time. Wow. Could you share some of those interventions or practices that are uh, done in schools around mindfulness? Yep, so one of them, so these are all, um, they're not um, as simple as like the, the fingertip trick that I taught you, they're a little bit, it's a little bit more complex because it's actually a curriculum, um, but one of which is called soles of the feet. So essentially it's a body scan that you would do with kids, but the language that's used is um, just more relatable for children. So you have them, you know, stand or sit in their chair and just, it's a guided body scan for the kid to um, ground down and look inward 
what sensations are feeling, what sensations are they feeling in their body? Start with the toes, work your way up from your ankles, your calves, your quads, your glute muscles, your butt muscles, um, your back, your chest, your arms, you know, squeeze your shoulders up to your ears, let it go, um, just to, to bring general awareness and calm to your entire body. That was really nice. So that's it for today. Thank you so much, Mary-Kate, for this insightful session. I loved it. Oh, my pleasure. I'm so glad. This was so much fun. So guys, y'all can connect with Mary-Kate on tinanateachings.com and on Instagram. And do join her Facebook group, Tinana Teachings. And don't forget to subscribe to her newsletter. The links for it will be mentioned in the show notes below. And until then, happy parenting.